Hello, welcome to the Withy Window Podcast, brought to you by Covenant Coffee. Well, today is going to be a little different. Many of you know that our family just welcomed into the world our newest blessing, Catherine Elizabeth McBee. She was born about four weeks ago, probably going on five now, and has already been such a blessing to our family. It's been such a joy to, um, honestly, to jump back in the stream again. It's been about five years since our last one, you know, two, uh, that Winnie was born, and um, and to see our, our older boys just engage her and love on her and care for her, um, it's just such a welcome dynamic in our home and something we're so thankful for. But also because of that, please excuse our lack of episodes, um, you know, as we adjust to a new baby both today and, and uh, these past few weeks and going forward. So today, you know, recently we, we held a men's camp at our, uh, at our farm at the Withy Window for Christ the Lord Church, um, and the camp was called our Church Fathers Camp, or this, the, the sub-title uh, was Boniface Camp, because the Church Father um, and a leader that we, uh, that we talked about this year was uh, Boniface. Now, I'll let you do the research on him, and I don't want to spend this episode talking about him particularly, but what you're about to hear is the talk that I gave at that camp. Now, Please note, uh, this talk was given in the context of all men and is aimed at men. So you ladies, if you want to know how to encourage your husbands or what to look for in a future husband or how to encourage the men around you, then please, by all means, give this a listen. I think it'll be really helpful. Um, and also, some further some resources I used for this talk that I would encourage you to take a look at. One is Michael Clary's book, God's Good Design. And the second is Five Aspects of Masculinity by Bill Mauser. Uh, go check those out. Give them a read. I'm sure they'll be a blessing to you. Uh, and lastly, please excuse the audio quality of the recording. Um, I, I, for some reason, it didn't record uh, through the microphone that it was supposed to record through. And so anyways, it's still intelligible. Uh, it just won't be as clear and um, as I would like it for uh, like for it to be. So I hope this is a blessing to you, and uh, God bless, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Uh, tonight, as we work through a couple things here in Genesis one, Genesis two, I, just a, a quick disclaimer, uh, just because I, I want to help you guys be good learners of the Bible. I tonight I would not count as an expositional sermon. It's more of a talk rooted and based in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, kind of collected with some wisdom and application. So uh, just keep that in mind. My goal is not to do a, a full exposition of these passages. Um, I have in other places dealt more expositionally with these items, but, um, but just to, to give you that up front. Um, the... I read this week, actually, it's a very timely post by a, uh, and I shared it by a, uh, a new acquaintance of mine named Mr. Newman. But he talks about, and I'm just going to paraphrase some of his thoughts here, he talks about the version of masculinity that's been peddled by the church in recent decades. Quote, a true man reads his Bible, goes to church, and prays every day. 
or this, quote-unquote, a real man is humble, forgiving, gentle, and generous. Now, I, shouldn't, I don't think I should have to caveat these things by saying that though those things are certainly true. But these traits, although true, these should be true of men, are not distinctly masculine qualities. Men and women both are called to this. But the problem is that what's been peddled in the church or what's been taught is just that manhood is these things. And yes, manhood includes these things. So does womanhood include these things. What I just read, read, humble, forgiving, generous, praying every day, going to church, those are true of mankind. But what are the things that are true of men from the Scriptures? And what's true of women from the Scriptures? And we've lost sight of what those things are. We've lost sight. The church has not been teaching on those things. Again, these are not distinctively masculine qualities. And this is, con- this is honestly, it's confusing general godliness versus godliness expressed in gendered virtues. So we're confusing those, this general godliness with what are gender-specific virtues that we should uh, address as a church. And so when churches, though, define manhood in ways that apply equally to women, what happens, uh, Newman says, we live a gaping hole for the outside culture to fill. When we don't define how a man as a man shows godliness, when we don't define how a woman as a woman shows godliness, the world will fill in that gap every single time. You and I will fill in the blanks. The way we want to. And so here we are, butchy women and effeminate men. And that's that would define much of our culture around us. Now there are two dangers with this. When you start advocating for biblical traits of manhood, you risk offending the feminists both in the church and outside the church. And so what happens is we retreat to safe vanilla, watered-down platitudes that apply to both men and women, which is really what the church has done. We'll just go to very general, high-level thoughts that are true for men and women both and, and make sure that we don't offend the feminists around us. But the other danger is that if you don't advocate for biblical traits of manhood, then we will continue, Newman says, to lose our boys to postmodern androgyny or the unsavory elements of the manosphere and the red pill movement. If you don't know what those are, uh, brief explanation. There's a huge movement in our culture right now that's very secular and ungodly that is a rejection of the feminist movement where they're saying we want to be men. I mean, there's, so there's aspects of that that are good, but they've, they're going too far. And that's what he says, uses the words like unsavory. Um, and the kind of the nomenclature or the description or the title for those movements is the Red Pill Movement or the Manosphere Movement. So, that, so here's the deal. Because the church has not given biblical definitions for what manhood is, the culture's filling in these gaps. So they either fill it in with very feminine descriptions or these ungodly descriptions, unsavory descriptions of the manosphere of the red pill movement. 
Those are the dangers. So let me give you those some examples of masculine specific virtues. Masculine specific virtues. So that you can kind of gain a sense of like what where where I'm sitting at here. We'll take a few of these from Newman as well. Men should develop their physical strength for manual labor. They should develop marketable skill to make money. They should take risks to develop courage and leadership. Men should learn how to use defensive violence. Men should learn how to argue rationally and debate publicly. Men should learn how to win a woman's heart and lead his family well. These are virtues that are uniquely masculine qualities. And I'm going to show you where here in a few moments. Now masculinity, though, is not a one-size-fits-all program, but the Bible does lay out distinctive traits and roles for men that are distinguishable from the traits and roles of women. Now, smoking cigars and drinking alcohol no more makes you a man than cutting your hair short and chopping off breasts can make a woman a man. We have to learn, though, as we think about masculinity uh, and femininity or gender in general, we have to learn to also be okay with the idea of generalities or stereotypes. Our world is like, is so hyper uh, individualism right now that to speak of like a generality or a stereotype, just people begin to cringe very, very quickly. But the way I'm defining stereotypes are simply an exercise in pattern recognition. Now here, I hope you see the correlation here. Wisdom is nothing more than pattern recognition. The book of Proverbs is pattern recognition. That's why you, how do you interpret the book of Proverbs? Well, they are statements, they are short, pithy statements that are what? Generally true. They're generalizations. They, they are describing the stereotype of the circumstance. Or describing the circumstance in a stereotypical fashion. Some would say that all stereotypes are wrong because characteristics observed from the group do not always apply to every individual. Thus, the claim is that stereotypes that are harmful because they mischaracterize individuals. In other words, uh, my friend Michael Clary says this, general rules are invalidated by exceptions. And so because of that, what's happened... You can see this in a world gone mad because we've rejected wisdom. And what is wisdom? It's just pattern recognition. We've rejected it. We have such a hyper impulse towards expressive individualism that to claim some aspect to be a general truth for all men is blasphemy according to current dogma. So here's how it goes. I'll give you an example if, so, so I don't lose you. How dare you say that men should be physically strong so they can subdue the earth physically? Well, I can't lift more than 40 pounds. Are you saying I'm not a man? I don't like that brand of masculinity. Listen, no one said you had to lift 40 pounds. 
what was said is that you need to steward your physical strength for the good of the physical world around you. It's a generality. That stereotypically, men should be strong using their strength. But what we do is we go to the nearest idea of strong, and then we begin to measure ourselves up against that. We go, well, but I'm not that. So are you saying, and they're like, well, I never said you had to be that. But we go right there, and then we say, well, I'm not that, so what you're saying is I'm not a man. So this is what I say. We have to be, get, learn to be comfortable in the world of generalities and stereotypes. What usually happens with generalities is they tend to draw out a man's insecurities. Because we tend to start measuring ourselves. Um, which is not all bad. But the insecurities being drawn out is certainly a good thing. So that we can take those to the cross in a godly way. So here's what I want to do. I want to work through two generalities of masculinity. Two of those. The first one is this, Lord of the Earth. And the second one is Husbandman. Lord of the Earth and Husbandman. The first one from Genesis 1, Lord of the Earth. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, now, again, this is where, like, my, my opening caveat is really important. I've done exposition in this passage in other contexts. But one of the key things you need to understand is that Genesis 1, if we're going to interpret this rightly, Genesis 1 is giving us just a, a big, grand overview of creation. Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 is getting into the specifics of, so when we get into Genesis 2, you're going to see that God didn't create man and woman at the same time. And He didn't create man and woman after all of creation was finished. You're going to see in Genesis 2, there's a distinct order in which things happen. So hang with me. But Genesis 1 is not just about how God created the world, but it climaxes with the creation of mankind as male and female. Man was created with the purpose, and this is what Genesis 1 is primarily about. So here's a summary statement for you. As God's representative, man has a mandate to lead in ruling and subduing the earth for God. He is, you see, the Father's rule being passed and given to Adam to then rule as a vice-regent over creation in God's place as a representative. That's what I mean by vice-regent. He is to be, what we see here is this picture of this, they are to be lowercase l lords. They are to rule, subdue, exercise dominion. That's what a lord does. They are to be lowercase l 
lords of the earth. Man has a responsibility to God and a responsibility to the earth. And that's what we miss, I think, in modern Christian culture. Man has not just a responsibility to God, but a responsibility to the earth as well. And nothing has changed. His responsibility on behalf of God towards the earth is to fill it, subdue it, to rule over it. Man is given this responsibility. Woman, and again, I'm not going to get into the exposition of this, but woman is there to help him. But man is ultimately responsible for it. I think you'll see a little more of that when I get to the Genesis 2 passage for husbandmen. But hang with me here. He's to be Lord over. So he's to fill it with the glory of God. Namely, through people who reflect God's glory in all of its various capacities. From orderliness to the beauty of depending on God to, to bringing the plants to be what God's uh, created them to be. Like, this is a, a very big picture here. He's to fill it with the glory of God. He's to subdue it. Namely, to bring order from chaos. And he's to rule it. Namely, to maintain God's morality and orderliness. So you say, well, how is this different than woman? See, women are to order, subdue, rule as well. But as the helper of their husband with her orientation toward him. Now again, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go down this realm because we're not here to talk about what the role of our, our wives are, our women are. <laughs> that sounds more apropos, right? <laughs> our women. Our women. Amen. 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 There we go. Uh, so I don't want to turn this into a, a talk on women. I've just given it so you can see the contrast. Hers is her orientation towards her husband. Men, though, are to order, subdue, and rule with their orientation towards the earth. Towards, towards the land that God has given us. Now, if we understand that man is created with this aspect, in his very makeup as a man, right, to fill it, to subdue it, to rule it, orientation towards the earth then we can begin to understand and account for many commonly observed characteristics about men and masculinity. Again, these are in the realm of generalizations. For example, man as lord of the earth immediately explains the often observed male fascination for the objective outside world. This is in opposition to the subjective, emotional, or relational world. Does that make sense? That's why women tend to be better and more in tune at relationships. Like they're more in tune to, and they're they're more in tune to what's subjective and not material. Men are oftentimes oblivious to those things, right? Like, oh, I didn't even know there was an issue. I told you that I loved you, and nothing's changed. So you know. I'm not advocating that you go do that. That's that's yeah. terrible advice. But uh, it wasn't advice. I wasn't. I was. Yeah, here we go. You get my point. Uh, but men are are more inclined towards what's objective, what's tangible, what what can be put in your hands. 
Another example, it's common for a man to want the big picture or to know where he's headed before he is set out on his journey. My buddy Clary gives this example. Men like to surf the channels, keeping an eye out on what's going on on all channels, and women tend to get irritated by this. Now, I will say that's a little bit of a dated example because the days of cable TV and surfing 80 channels are kind of a little antiquated now. But, uh, but you get the point. Like we we, we want to see the big picture. That, that, that fits the Lord of the Earth characteristic. Because what is Adam to do? He's to, to, to fill the earth. He's not just to take care of that plant, but those plants and those animals. And then he's to take that and spread it. To bring order out of chaos everywhere he goes. <clears throat> another example, again, if this is the way God's created us, another example would be if, if anything gets a man's attention, it's often the idea of power. Physical power, like machines. Have you ever seen the little boy? What do they What do they tend to gravitate towards? Unless mom and dad have shoved a Barbie in their hands. What do they tend to gravitate towards? Construction, Construction trucks, right? Tonka trucks. What What will they? Guns. That's right. What will they? A lot of power there. What What will they like? You know, turn their necks to see when you're going down the road, right? Have bulldozers, big machinery. I mean, I do that, you know. But not just physical power, social power. They're always organizing themselves into interlocking chains of command. Since men were created to be responsible to someone for something, responsible to God for the earth, responsible to someone for something. We are created that way. It's no surprise that men have an affinity for rank and hierarchy. I, a lot of you guys do these things and you don't realize what you're doing, but you walk into a room and, we, and men will intuitively begin to try to figure out what's the pecking order. Who's the one in charge? Who's next in charge? How are we going to get done? What are we going after? What's the plan? Next example, men are drawn to serve some cause or leader greater than themselves. We named a camp after, uh, for this year after uh, St. Boniface. He understood that Christ was Lord over all, the, the ultimate Lord of the earth. And so what's he do? He exercises the Lord's Lordship over Donner's Oak, the pagan god in Boniface's day. And he chops the thing down. He walked up to the tree, quote, removed his shirt, took an axe, and without a word chopped it down. Then he stood on the trunk and asked, how stands your mighty God? My God is stronger than he. Next, men are drawn to those who will push them beyond what they think they can do. Now, what do I mean by that? Men want to be pushed towards lordship. I want to be pushed and encouraged to, to move beyond just letting life happen. I, I want to have mastery over this. Lordship over this thing that God has given me. My family, my home, my job, whatever it is. 
Soft, effeminate men want to hide in the weaknesses that they have and the lack of lordship. And so what they do is they hide themselves away in their ivory towers like a princess. Next example, men's desire, men desire oftentimes conflict and competition. I'm going to take this from um, a homesteader that I like. His name's John Moody, kind of a crazy hair, judo, skinny homesteader. Anyways, he says this, generally speaking, the more a man fulfills the desire for conflict and competition, the more he more he fulfills that desire or need online, the less he is fulfilling it in real life in God-honoring and constructive ways. He says this, lift, train, BJJ, and get thrashed multiple times per week. No pain, the fear or the reality of being choked out, of being pinned beneath someone far stronger and more skilled, or, or I added, or fatter than you. <laughs> Build a side hustle or a small business. Face risk, loss, success. Take up markmanship, markmanship, bushcraft, whatever. Be uncomfortable in creation. Too hot, too cold, unpredictable. Learn to fix things, motors, tools, cars, plumbing. Apply your fingers to getting crushed and cut and beat up and your muscles to breaking nuts and bolts. Master an instrument. Feel the pain and struggle of trying to bend your body and an instrument to your will and skill. He says, it is a big world God has called you to. Rule and subdue. Tend and keep. He says, you will be amazed at how much less energy you will have for fruitless virtual reality and how much more fruit and skill you will have to display in the real world. The men desire, where is this coming from? Because we were created to be lords of the earth, to subdue, to rule over, to bring order out of chaos. Well, what's that look like? It, it has to look like someone who's not opposed to conflict and competition. It has to look like someone who's drawn to being pushed beyond. Now these are all, again, good things. Wonderful, godly, glorious, masculine things. The desire for power. The desire for strength. The desire for order. The desire for control. The desire for lordship. None of those things are evil. They're not bad. They're not shameful. Our world has told us these things are bad. Tuck them away and let the women have all of them. But like anything else, it can be used badly. It can be used for evil. It can go awry. It can be used to be legitimately oppressive and hurtful. But when it's absent, it also causes damage too. Or when the women decide to try to be the men, that causes damage too. But these impulses are good impulses, godly impulses, that we have to learn to walk in God's grace and be empowered by the Spirit, defined by the Word, as we apply them for the, for the glory of God and for the good of the earth. 
We should strive to be lowercase lords of the earth. But where does that begin? Lordship over your own soul. I don't, I get lowercase l, lordship over your, right? Bringing robust truth from the Lord to feed your soul. You must get up in the morning and consider lordship over your soul, or someone will rule over your soul for the day. Or you will rule over your soul for a bad reason for the day. Lordship over your desires and your emotions. Don't tell me that you're not emotional. Every single one of us in this room are emotional. It just may not look like crying like your wife. I mean, it could. But generally speaking, it probably does not. It probably looks more like anger or coldness or indifference, like I'm just going to stay stoned or stoic. Bring order to your emotions so that they emote correctly. Meaning they're, let me rephrase that, so that they're emoting righteousness. That they're emoting from a state of righteousness versus they're emoting is coming from a state of unrighteousness. Lordship over your mind. It's so easy to let our minds wander from one thing to the next. A billboard catches it, and our mind goes that way. A song catches it, we go that way. The driver cuts us off, and our mind goes that way. I felt I was cutting my grass yesterday. And as, as you guys have seen, and I hope you guys have enjoyed even your evening tonight, it's a beautiful place. Like, I love it. And I'm cutting my grass, and I'm mulling over a pastoral thing that, that i got to deal with. And I'm just, like, grumpy. Like, I'm just grumpy. <clears throat> And by God's grace, I got down to the corner, which in my opinion is like the most beautiful spot. And the Lord just said, what? Why are you so, why are you emoting about that? Don't you know that, that I'm so much bigger than whatever it is that you're worried about? And he just used the view of the land he's given me to work to remind me of how great he was. Now that doesn't mean that the other situation is not important. Or it doesn't have to be dealt with. But, but what, it, what it did was it put it under the right lordship. I, by God's power in that moment, exercised lordship over my mind, which then affected my emotions, by placing it in submission to the Lord. I enjoy the rest of my grass cutting thoroughly. Lordship over your bodies. Do you have mastery over it for the good of those around you? Uh, and that, that, that could be anything from weightlifting to cardio health to eating habits to sleeping habits to television watching. Right? There's a whole slew. That's why it's so easy for, again, for us to just go to that one person or that one thing. We just measure ourselves there. We go, well, I'm not that, and so I... Uh, well, maybe you're not, and maybe you should be. But maybe you're not, and maybe you shouldn't be. Maybe you're supposed to be more like this person. Maybe that's a better example the Lord has given you. I would also tell you, be careful that you don't justify, I'm supposed to be more like that person because I just don't want to do the hard work to get there. Lordship over your bodies. Lordship over your household. 
Lordship over your wife. Learning to tell her no when she should be told no. You know, Greg walked up and they locked himself out of the house and I asked him if Kirsten had not given him the keys yet to the house. <laughs> it was totally a joke, but I, I meant the point. Uh, God has, this is, again, I, I'm not going to caveat this to death. It'll lose its power, just as the Pharisees did. This doesn't mean that, that we just get to come in and say what we want, it doesn't matter, and it's all about us. That's not what I'm talking about here. But the other side of it, of just letting her rule and have whatever in the world she wants and just keeping her happy, is also not godly either. But to rule and discern and to decide and to move forward in a way that is good for your wife, according to God's word and the wisdom of those around you that are in God's word as well, that is the kind of Lord that you and I are called to be. I say the phrase learning to tell her no because I think that is pressing in on our current struggle in our current culture. You know, we, we all have bought into that mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And I would say, well, if mama ain't happy, then dad has not been doing his job correctly. And, and what I, I know, what I mean by that, I don't mean that he's not been giving her what she wants. What I mean is he has been giving her what she wants, and she's not happy. Because what dad should be giving, or husband should be giving his wife, is what she needs, not necessarily what she wants. That's what a Lord does. That's what a good Lord does. He gives to whatever he is lording, whatever it needs, based on what is best for it. Same thing for our kids. Lordship over our kids. For some examples, we should expect orderliness from them. We should teach them like how to talk. Teach them things like respect. In our home, we're going back through uh, a little book called 24 Family Ways. And we skipped this time right up to chapter 6, which is we love one another by treating each other with kindness, gentleness, and respect. So we're trying to, that's just something our household needs to work on at this moment. Um, that's a, a lordship issue that, that, that I'm having to lead through. Next, lordship over your workplaces. Whatever that is. Whether you're a student currently, or you're working at a factory, or you sit at a computer. Subduing it. Ruling it. Ruling over it. Next, lordship over politics and the public square. Listen, someone's going to rule. Alright? And, and we've bought into this idea that, that Christianity looks like us just sitting by passively, saying nothing, and look where we're at right now. 
lordship over education, sports. Now, ending here with those examples, let me say this. These things can look a thousand different ways across a hundred different men. You do the math. So be careful. For example, lordship over your body, as I said before, doesn't have to look like going to the gym five days a week. Maybe it should for you. But lordship over your body doesn't look like being soft playing video games. Lordship over your body looks like stewarding your physical body for the physical good of the physical world around you and beyond. I'm just saying, be careful how we define these things, but but the, God's called us to be lords of the earth, to exercise rulership in every area that he has placed, the corner of the earth that he's put you, the office corner, the property corner, the church corner, the household corner, the mental corner, and be intentional, exercising lordship over it. Genesis 2, number, number 2, husbandman. Husband. It's similar to Lord of the Earth, but far more focused. Lord of the Earth is more about general rulership. Okay? Subduing, directing, commanding. Husbandman is focused on the act of bringing something to its fullest potential. Okay? That's what you need to hear. So, Lord, Lord of the earth, general lordship, rulership. You're looking at the big thing and say, how are we gonna how are we gonna move this thing forward? Like and bring subduing, ruling strength, the glory of God in that way, over it. Husbandman is more on the act of bringing that thing to its fullest potential. Working it, directing it, occasioning for its growth. All for the fullest reality that God has created that thing for. Whether that's a late 1800's barn... Or it's a two-week-old little girl. Or it's a career. Or it's a wife. Bring it to its fullest potential that God has created it for. So Genesis 2 tells us that the end, um, at the end of the creation week, that there was no cultivated plants because there was no one to cultivate the ground, man was created to fill that void. So this is where understanding what's happening in Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2 is real important. Genesis 2 is giving us far more details. Genesis 1 is like, wow, God created the earth and he did all these awesome things and boom, there it is. Genesis 2 is like, all right, well, here's what happened and this piece fits here and these piece fits here and, and, and these things uh, happened in this order. So look at here in verse 5 of chapter 2. I'm going to read through verse 9. Everybody there? Because I want you to you gotta see this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, 
right? Now, hang on. Pause. He's created the land. He's created, you know, separated the seas with the land and the sky and all that stuff. This has happened. Just this one. But look here. No bush of the field was yet in the land. No small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. Alright, so man, why hadn't God done, why hadn't God formed, as we're going to find out in a second, he hasn't formed the garden yet. Why? Because there was no man to work it yet. No man to cultivate it yet. So then the Lord God, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Now the garden is planted. That's not in your words. I just added that. Right? Now the garden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. We'll stop there. I want you to notice a few things very quickly. You won't have time to write these down. The earth had been created, but the garden in Eden had not. There's no garden yet. Why? Because there's no man to work the ground. Two, then Adam was created. Then the garden was created. You should also notice, and you can go back and read the rest of chapter 2, but Eve has not been created yet. Just Adam. So here's what happens. God cults the, cultivates the land into the Garden of Eden while Adam is watching. That's a crucial thing to not miss in this passage. Adam is standing on God. God creates him out of the dust of the earth and says, here, and then he looks at Adam and says, Watch. And then he causes from the land to sprout up this tree and that tree. And he builds this place. And what's it say? What's it say? Uh, in verse, uh, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Whom he had formed. Past tense. He placed him in the garden now. I mean, could you imagine being Adam like, whoa, this place is a little barren, dude. Like, why'd you put me here? And God's like, hey, just watch. Boom. And he cultivates this land. He models for Adam what it looks like to work the ground. And then he picks Adam up and he puts him in the garden that he just worked for him with his own hands. What a, what a powerful thing to see God Almighty. I mean, he missed, Adam, you understand, Adam missed the rest of creation, right? He missed the, the separation of the waters and the skies and all that stuff, but he did not miss God's creation of the garden, the place that was most orderly and most cultivated 
and most beautiful and most ruled at this point by God directly himself. And then he puts Adam and says, you're going to now work the ground. You're going to cultivate it. Adam is now to be the husband man. This responsibility to work the ground to its fullest potential is given to man here and not to woman. Yes, she will come later. Yes, she will be there to help him. But listen to me. The uniquely, it's a uniquely masculine characteristic in calling is the responsibility to cultivate. It's given to man. She will help him, but she will help him in a different, more unique way that only a woman can help. In a glorious, beautiful way. So he's a husband man. So here's how we define husband man. How, I'm sorry, go back up. Here's how we tend to define husband men today. The one who provides the sperm. Or the one who brings home money. Or the one who maybe fixes things around the house or at least hires someone to do it. He's definitely the one who watches sports or plays video games. That's for sure him. But husbandry finds its definition right here in Genesis 2. Not just by the phrase, work the ground, but by what is modeled for Adam by God himself. Go back to verse 8 again, in verse 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up. Look at these things, two categories. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God plants a garden. He makes to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the eyes and every tree that is good for food. Notice those two aspects. A tree that is pleasant to the sight. What's he mean? That's something that's beautiful and enjoyed. It's meant to be looked at. It's meant to look at and go, wow, that's beautiful. It's amazing. And he tells to Adam, you're going to go do the same thing. You're going to tend to that. You're going to cultivate that. But not just that. But second of all, a tree that is good for food, for our survival, for our sustenance. Husbandry is about strategically leading the world around us to its fullest potential for our joy and our survival. And God has given us this task. He begins with something relatively undeveloped and matures it or develops it until it reaches a higher state of productivity or a more advanced state of maturity. I mean, let me just back up for this. How many of us look at our wives that way? Like my responsibility is to help lead my wife to the fullest measure of maturity that God has assigned for her. Uh, man, that, I mean, for some of you, are like, oh, shoot. <laughs> That's a big order. Uh, I hope you look at that and say, you know, 
if that's God's call and he's made me to do that, and if I'm a follower of Jesus, I now have all the grace needed to do that, then this tall order, I can get on that. It doesn't mean it's going to be uh, lacking any measure of grit or effort or pain. But you have all the grace you need to do it. You have all the instruction you need to do it from His Word. And He's sufficient. God is sufficient. Christ is enough. Now you can see this observed naturally in men. You can see it as men tinker with automobile engines or body repair. Right, trying to bring that engine to its fullest potential or that body back to when it originally shined with beauty and getting rid of the rust or the dings from the, from the accident or maturing and developing organizations. You know, developing systems and, and uh, communications and protocols that help a, a, an organization mature and function better. Just like that engine is supposed to function better. Or how about an individual person? This is why men are great at being coaches and teachers. Or spending time in the gym, bringing your muscles to their fullest potential. This is why men often are found telling their sons to stop crying and get off the ground. Or when a man instructs his wife in the truth when she's an emotional mess. Anytime a man attempts to bring something or someone along a path from lesser development and maturity toward greater maturity, this is a picture of this husband man we're talking about. Now the reality is we think about husband man, we have to also recognize that it takes courage, boldness, and risk to be a husband man. Let me give you some examples. It's risky to put your hands into the mix of something underdeveloped. I'll give you this farm we're standing on, for example. It's old. <laughs> You're already joking about falling through the floor if you... Uh, you know, stomp too hard. I can tell you there was a Ford Expedition that used to be parked in here on a frequent basis. That was before the BMW M3, I think, that was used to be parked where I'm standing at right now. Uh, if you don't know what BMW that is, it's the one, one of the older James Bonds that he drove. It's parked right here. Now there's a table with food and men. Much better. Singing godly songs. Much heavier. Yes. Amen. <laughs> Much heavier. Especially after that brisket. It's old. And there are many parts that have been left to degradation. It was and still is a huge risk. It's taken boldness to examine my own personhood, the resources of my family, my friends, both finances and manpower, and a whole lot of grit. And yet here we are. It's a courage to see something and see beyond it. And not just to look at something and go, well, it's got potential, and then walk on. But to say, you know what, that thing has potential, and I'm going to see it reach its potential. With everything that the Lord has given me, 
takes courage, boldness. It takes boldness to tell something that is underdeveloped and then to do something about it. To look at a backyard full of untamed, nasty scrub brush and say, you're out of control. I'm going to cultivate you to some potential. I'm going to build a pond. I'm going to cut the trees back and plant new grass. To look at a building on Huffman Avenue and say, we can make you beautiful and useful once again. One electrical outlet at a time, one piece of ductwork at a time, one room at a time until we make every last corner reach its potential to be pleasant to the eyes and good for food. Like every like men, every work day, whether you're cutting grass or whatever, like you gotta think this way. You're not just moving stuff from one room to the next, although it might feel like that's all you do, like digging holes all day. But listen, three guys showed up, and, and, and one of the wives came just a few weeks ago, I guess it was a month ago, whenever this barn was just full. It was our landing spot for everything that didn't have a place in the other buildings. You could hardly walk in here. And it just, people moved things. And here we are. When you're working on Huffman, you gotta think about those things. To look at another man and say you are weak and underdeveloped takes boldness and courage and risky. Man, you're not in your Bible like you should be. Man, you're not leading your home like you should be, man. You might be masculine in the virtual world, but you're like a woman out here. Let me help you do something about that. It takes risk. You might say you might need to say something like that to those who are around you. It takes courage to be a husband man. It's easy to just to recognize something is underdeveloped, but then to say I'm going to do something about it. Adam was to expand the Garden of Eden. He was to look at the next acre and say, I'm going to take the risk and exercise the courage and the boldness to jump on that next acre. For some of you, the biggest area of husband, man, that you need courage and boldness could be with your wife and your kids. To look at your family and say, I'm underdeveloped in these areas, and here's what I'm going to do about it. Will you forgive me and will you help me? To look at your wife and say, honey, I love you, but you are more ruled by your bitterness than by the glory of God. And I'm going to help you do something about it. Or to look at your kids maybe and say, child, you're like an untamed plot of land. (laughs) You're not redeemed, but I want to lead you to Christ. To show you the mercy that's offered to you and I at the cross. Let me end with reminding you of these things. Boniface was Lord of the earth when he walked up to the oak and chopped that idol down. He was a husband man as he spiritually trained man after man after man. Jesus was and is the perfect Lord of the earth, capital L. He defeated sin and death. And rules over it all as everything is being put under his feet as a footstool. 
that's not subduing, I don't know what is. Jesus was and is the perfect husbandman, bringing to completion what he has started in each one of his children and cultivating his kingdom on this earth, one life and one nation at a time.